guys? My name is KJ and this is Why Theology. Today we had a very special guest. His name is Pastor Jeremiah from Jonesboro, Arkansas. He came on board today to help me discuss the topic of limited atonement. So when we come back, we'll be dealing with limited atonement. What's guys? This is Why Theology. My name is KJ, short for Khalil Jones, and today I have a very special guest, Mr. Jeremiah. Man, can you introduce yourself? Yes. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Jeremiah Nortier. I live in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Um, I love my wife so much. She she is my best friend, and she is my lifelong partner. Uh, her name is Allie Nortier. We are looking forward to adopt, hopefully, one day in the near future. So anybody listening in can keep us in prayer about that. And I serve at a new church plant in Jonesboro, Arkansas, called 12-5 Church. So that actually comes from Romans 12, verse 5, where it just articulates that even though we are many in the body, we are one in Christ. So that's just a brief introduction of myself, KJ. I got you. How long have you been married, man? Or don't tell my wife it took me this long to think about it, but it's a little <laughs> bit over five years now. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's good. That's pretty good, man. Maybe I might have been married. It'd be two years this May. So oh, nice, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll I'll let you know once I figure out all the, the nuances to marriage. I'll I'll tell you, I'll tell you in about everything. <laughs> That'd be a blessing, man. That'd be a blessing. Now, um, how did you how did you and your wife meet, man? So that's a great question, um, and I'll I'll tell you a little bit more than maybe she would want me to. No, I'm just I'm just playing. But <laughs> we met at the Baptist Collegiate Ministry wow. at ASU, and she was supposed to go to a Church of Christ organization mm-hmm. and to meet a guy, and she accidentally ended up at the BCM, the wrong place where I met her, and she never w- went back to the other place. So that's that was God's providence. <laughs> he literally he literally brought her to you uh-huh, uh-huh. now how long have you been in ministry you know how did you know how did god put you there or what's kind of like the story behind that man yes so um in college i was i was the typical student that could not make up my mind what i wanted my major to be in mm-hmm. and so it was around my junior year i changed my major from business to computer science and all these things and I just found myself wanting to be in ministry to serve at the church. And I didn't know how it would happen, but um, some some godly counts in my life talked about how communication is always going to be vital in that. So I majored in communication and I started thinking about the future and how I wanted to go to seminary. And God was laying on my heart, the Master's Seminary in California, Southern Theological Seminary in Louisville. And I was just thinking, okay, I want to, I want to go residentially to seminary. And then in that time, I met my my wife Allie in college, and I told her, hey, this is kind of my trajectory. I want to go to seminary. Mm-hmm. And over time, um, I I met a local pastor in Jonesboro, and he hired. He was like, hey, come on staff. We really would like a youth pastor. And I said, well, I really want to do seminary first, then go into the ministry. And I loved this man's guidance in my life. He said, he said, that's great. And we might can work that out. He said, but let us come in and mold you just as, you know, through discipleship. And he encouraged me to go ahead and just pursue the calling that I felt in God's life. And so I did ministry before seminary. 
and um and i was just captivated i i went through the good the bad and the ugly side of ministry and i kept finding myself that this is exactly where god has me so hopefully seminary will happen one day in the future but i'm a huge advocate of the church equipping the saints for these things not having to simply send them off um somewhere even though i I think there's some godly seminaries but man if you can get plugged into a local church i really do think that's where it's at that seems to kind of be like the biblical model as well. You know, I think like, you know, Paul was still in Timothy, like, you know, he was raised up in the church, kind of like what you just said. Mm-hmm. But I know like a lot of churches, you know, it's not made to, I guess, good solid churches nowadays that can, you know, has resources mm-hmm. to do so. So they do send them out. Yeah. But, uh, I think you mentioned earlier about wanting to go to Master's Seminary. So I'm assuming uh, John, Mac- I know this probably, but uh, John McGuff is one of your greatest influences right now. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Who else do you kind of like? Yeah, so there's been kind of, there's there's been multiple figures in my life that I'm so thankful to the Lord for having um, just the technology and the means to get really good teaching. Like I love the name of your podcast, Why Theology. We got to understand that theology is just simply studying God. Everybody everybody has a conviction about who God is, whether He exists or not. So everybody's a theologian. To put a shameless plug for R.C. Sproul's book, everyone's a theologian. And so he was another major influence in my life. So MacArthur really drilled in home for me that the scripture is preeminent in the walk of a Christian. That's the final authority. Um, Jesus said, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So MacArthur really taught that as Christians, we live and breathe the word of God. That's how we have relationship. And so R.C. Sproul he not only taught that, but he opened up just a huge door um, into church history and just showing me how Christ has been building his church for 2000 years. And I loved that. I loved the rich doctrine and, and history of the church through RC. And then another um, major figure in my life that God has used is Dr. James White. <laughs> he kind of had the best of both worlds in my mind. He would use the scripture as an apologetic tool and he was also well equipped with church history. And it's like, I got to see those used together to contend for the faith and to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. And then I started seeing other guys' ministries that were just super influential in my life, um, like Todd Friel, oh, yeah. his Wretched Radio Ministry and Wretched TV. I, I fell in love with his heart for sharing the gospel evangelistically. And, you know, he would record those episodes. And I found myself not only being sanctified, like understanding these truths more and more, but just seeing how he is fulfilling the Great Commission. Like he's actually going out, preaching the gospel, making disciples. And so guys like Todd Friel and Ray Comfort, I got to see a hands-on experience of of sharing the gospel. So there's a lot more men, but those are probably the ones that come to the forefront of my mind who've just been super influential in my life. That's amazing, man. I know you just mentioned R.C. Sproul. We're actually going to be talking about a subject that R.C. Sproul kind of delved into a lot. You know, he was alive. Uh-huh. And uh, so today's subject at hand is a limited atonement. Now, before we get canceled, I guess let's kind of take a step back before we before we even define limited atonement. Uh-huh. What do we mean when we say that? Because I know this is kind of associated with TULIP, but like, what is TULIP kind of, I guess, you want to give us kind of brief history about that? Yes. So this is where like men like R.C. Sproul and James White have helped me understand that church history is important when defining terminology. Now, obviously, the scripture, the terms that the scripture uses, that is the one we should be most familiar with. But we're all 
bound to use the vernacular of our own context and our own day and time. And probably one of the best examples of this is the word Trinity. You know, guys like me and you, men that believe in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, we understand we believe the Trinity, and yet we don't see that term. So church history can tell us how these terms developed. And no matter what terms we use, like limited atonement or the whole acrostic of tulip and what that entails, we must say, okay, what does that mean? And what does the Bible teach? If the Bible teaches that, well, then praise God, right? We embrace that doctrine. You know what I mean? So it's guys like James White that really made me think, okay, I'm going to test all things and, and hold fast to that which is good. So really, I've heard just people saying, well, that word, that term is not found in the Bible, but we should we should look past that and say, well, what does the Bible teach and what does that term from church history mean? So I just wanted to kind of set that up to say that limited atonement falls within that acrostic for tulip, right? Now, a lot of people may be familiar with this, maybe not, but tulip is an acrostic, like it stands for something, right? And so tulip are essentially the five points of Calvinism. And when, when you say, you know, I've, I've had conversations with people and they're like, Calvin who? Like, it's totally no context at all. And I totally empathize with that because at one point in time, I was right there where they're at currently. So what really helps is understanding church history. And so these five points of Calvinism were written as a defense against the five articles of the remonstrance. Hmm. Now, this is important to understand because the church was pretty well unified on who God is according to scripture and who man is according to the scripture. But you had men like Jacob Arminius and kind of some of his followers that they came up with five articles to say, well, we disagree with some of these key doctrines that the church has been teaching. And so Tulip was written as a, a defense or a response to these five articles of the remonstrance. And so something I want to say real quick, um, KJ, is that when something is written as a defense, um, you don't always have the leisure of presenting something in a clear, positive fashion. So these five points were written as a defense. And if history could re, uh, rewrite itself, I think a lot of advocates for Calvinism um, would, would really rewrite this acrostic um, with more precise terminology because something like the term limited atonement carries some baggage to yeah. it. You know what I mean? So like I said, um, I, th I think if we understand church history, we understand that TULIP was written as a defense, it can kind of clear up some of the misconceptions that are attached to it, you know? And kind of like what you just said, too, this, this acronym kind of is, is describing how God is sovereign. And we kind of see that mm, throughout exactly. the scriptures. You kind of mentioned as well, like Jacob Arminian or Arminius. If you go back to like Augustine or some people call him Augustine, you know, he had his you know, mm -hmm. disputes with um, Pelagian, I think. And kind of like that old, it kind of stemmed it, right? It's kind of started there in church history. And that was like early 300s AD, I think. So it's kind of been going on for a little minute. But like for them, you know, I guess the, the great majority of church history, they've always held to like kind of, you know, these doctrines in a sense. They may not have been kind of mm -hmm. spoken as a tulip, but they've always kind of held on that God is sovereign, even in the midst of salvation. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess my next question, man, is um, now that we kind of, like, I guess, define, you know, TULIP, you know, a T is total depravity, the U is unconditional election, and the L that we're talking about today is limited atonement. Now, I've done a whole series about this, but I want to kind of focus on this one in particular because a lot of stuff we can unpack. But how would you define, I guess, uh, limited atonement? 
Yeah, I think just very briefly, limited atonement carries some baggage to it. But really what it's getting at is that Jesus is the perfect savior to all that the father has given him. So kind of as an as another setup, going back to the acrostic tulip, um, this was kind of a joke that James White had said a while back. He said, but if the acrostic could have been rewritten differently, it would have been stulip, right, beginning with an S, which would be for the sovereignty of God. And so everything else in the acrostic would flow from the sovereignty of God. So that's where church history didn't really have the advantage of rightly qualifying these five doctrines of grace, because we see God's hand graciously, mercifully, you know, working out a plan of redemption for a people that do not deserve God's grace. Yet out of his love and compassion, you know, he is uh, regenerating. A, a people to be a bride for the son and the Holy spirit is re, not only regenerating them, but sealing them to the day of redemption. So that's why the five points of Calvinism are seen as the doctrines of grace. We really try to help explain people that God is sovereign. He's working out a plan of redemption and we are saved by his grace. Nothing that we bring to the table by our own human works. So that's where the you kind of fall. You know, we're, we're really focusing on the you of, um, you know, the or the L for limited atonement. But that has to be within a context of God's sovereignty. Right. So I think that that kind of helps us get the ball rolling that the L is limited um, in its in its scope, but not necessarily in its effect. So um, I actually prefer a different term when we're talking about limited yeah. atonement. Um, particular redemption is probably how I would begin to explain to people what we're actually talking about, that um, Jesus is, once again, the perfect Savior for a particular group of people that the Father has chosen by His grace and His mercy, according to His decrees, if you will, um, and Jesus is the perfect Savior to redeem that particular group of people. His atonement is definite for them, very specific for them. So not only is particular redemption a good, um, probably a better phrase, but also definite atonement. So do you see how really, you know, pulling back the curtains, looking at church history and, and trying to look at more passages of scripture, we understand that limited atonement might carry some baggage with it. Like, Oh, is God limited where he can't do something? It's like, man, we're talking about Jesus being the perfect savior for all that the father is given. Hmm. Now, are there any like verses in the Bible to kind of support the definition? Yes. So, um, there's a ton of, them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the questions that you sent me beforehand, I liked it because it was, did Jesus believe in limited hmm. atonement? And I, I started thinking about that, and I'm thinking, well, absolutely, yes. But for just a second, I was thinking there are a lot of Christians that really put more emphasis on the red-lettered um, portions of the Bible, red-lettered Christians. Maybe people have heard, you know, they, they think that there's more, it's, it's more, it's, it's more special if Jesus said it rather than the Apostle Paul. And I know guys like me and you, we see right through that. But since all Scripture is God-breathed, well, we got to look to the whole counsel of God, all of Scripture, to build a doctrine, right? So we see the value in not only the red letters, what Jesus said, but also what the Apostle Paul said, what the rest of the Old Testament said. So we kind of, we really come to the Scripture as a systematic whole on some of these things. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? 
So I guess, first of all, if we, if I really, you know, we try to unpack what limited atonement means or particular redemption, um, Jesus in John chapter six, he said this in verses 37 through 40, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we see here, Jesus is going to save perfectly to the uttermost all that the Father is giving to him. So when I'm talking with people, and we might get we might bring up some of the controversial passages, you know, and trying to understand the atonement, like John three sixteen, First John two two. And I'm saying, look, what Jesus is saying is that it's the Father's will, it's the sovereign triune God's will that is going to be accomplished. And so it's not that Jesus is not able to save more people or something like that. No, but His work of atonement is very specific to all that the father has given to him. So I think that helps have a right perspective on what we're talking about. Is it limited atonement for the elect? Yes, but it's really more of an emphasis about Jesus being the perfect savior. That's think? a pretty good definition too. I, I know um, as well, I think it's in John 10, where Jesus says, I lay my life down mm -hmm. for my sheep. And like the illustration that I, I, mm -hmm. I love kind of using, um, is like imagine like, if I can modernize it, I guess, it's like imagine if you was going um, like to your school, like a you know, your children's school, and like um, you went into like, the classroom and you say, you know, hey, I don't know your children's name, but let's say your children's name like John, you know, Mary. You say, hey, John and Mary, you know, come on, let's go. I'm taking you out. Um, the other kids in the classroom wouldn't look at you because you know you're not your parent, but like John and Mary, if you're like their father, they will look at you because they know your voice, and they're your children. Yes. Well, in the same way, during that context back in the day, when Jesus says, my, "I know my sheep, my sheep know me," I live my life down for my sheep. If Jesus, like a shepherd, were mm -hmm. to go to like the fence or whatever, and he called out his sheep, the rest of the sheep wouldn't move because mm -hmm. they don't know that shepherd. But the shepherd, you know, I guess mm -hmm. the sheep that know that shepherd's voice, they would directly come to him because he's a shepherd of that flock. Well, in the same way, like you just said, Christ, he lays his life down for a definite or a particular group of people, which is the elect of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and that's that's perfect because when he says, my sheep hear my voice, there's an there's an intimate relationship going on. So that's like you said in John 10, 27, 28, say, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So, like you're saying, he lays his life down for his sheep, a very uh, specific group of people, and he's the perfect high priest, mediator, intercessor. For those people. So that's how we're kind of building this, this doctrine. The atonement is a substitution atonement. Jesus actually paid the penalty of sin on the behalf of a very particular group mm -hmm. of people. So when we're talking about, you know, what did Jesus specifically said, maybe before we get into what the apostle Paul said, or Isaiah 53, he goes into a high priestly prayer. A lot of us are familiar with in John mm -hmm. 17. And he says this, and we, we can't miss it because a lot of times people want to look at the, the word world, cosmos, and then instantly assume that it means every single 
person to ever exist without exception. <laughs> and you and I know that we got to always let context develop our understanding of what the scripture is teaching us. And we got to be familiar with the, the Greek and the Hebrew um, words of what words can mean and what, what they don't mean. And context always um, shows us what that is. And so to me, it's inescapable of what Jesus is saying in relation to all that the Father has given to him and the contrast of what the world looks like. So in, in John 17, Jesus says, I have manifested your, your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and have kept your word. I am praying for them, and I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And so once again, you notice how Jesus is not praying for the world, but for those whom the Father has given him out <laughs> of the world. Right. So once again, he's, he's a perfect mediator. He's a perfect intercessor. He's the, the paraclete or the, the advocate. For the people of God. Yes. You know what I mean? That's perfect, man. That's perfect. Something that I guess is kind of helps us, like, kind of with this, you know, I guess this, I don't want to say you call it an argument, but, <laughs> but kind of like help, I guess, kind of define it even better is like a doctrine, you know, theology yeah. known as substitutionary atonement, that Christ he was a substitute mm -hmm. for our sin. And so, like, if that is true or since that is true, that means that all my past, present, and future sins have been wiped away. And so, for those who are truly professing Christ, they won't end up in hell. But like if there are people in heaven right now and there are people in hell, then we know there's no way in the world Christ could have died for every single body. That's kind of, I guess, another way you can look at it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you just put your finger on, um, I guess, a hard question for people on the other side of this issue that hold to a universal atonement. Um, I think a hard question is that they have to answer is, did Jesus die for every sin, including unbelief. Well, you know, for those of us that are reformed and believe, I would say consistently with penal substitutionary atonement, we can say, yes, he actually died for the sin of unbelief for all the elect. And if you, if you do not affirm that and deny that, then I think you have a, have trouble harmonizing passages out of Colossians 2, 13 in particular, and then 1 John 1, 7, that says, by the blood of Jesus he accomplished um, he accomplished salvation for all who believe, and he completely forgives all <laughs> sin. So you you see how that's going to be. I'll tell you what. I can actually pull up Colossians two thirteen because it's it's all inclusive. And you who were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. <laughs> And so the idea is, well, is it all of them or is it all of them, you know, except, you know, our unbelief? And that's where we would we would, I think, be consistent and say, yeah, well, Jesus's death even covered the sin of unbelief for the elect. So I think that is something that we all got to wrestle with is, you know, is Jesus his atonement? You know, is it truly a substitute? Um, did it did it cover all the sin? Um, if it did, then that's where we understand, you know, salvation. We don't bring any of our works, not even our good decision making or our wisdom to the table. Jesus is the one that accomplished all that. I guess we could look at it because it's probably another issue that might arise out of this kind of what we're discussed. And, um, you know, let's, I guess there's some, may, some Christians may think of, you know, I guess in, in this sense that, yes, indeed, you know, Christ does have a let. But these are a lot of the ones that God looked to at the quarter of the time and see that they would, you know, make a decision. 
in, you know, Christ, mm-hmm. and then therefore Christ chose that person. And now, you know, that, that those are the ones Christ died for. First, you know, it kind of been a sovereign election, you know, kind of of God. How right. did that do? <laughs> yes. So I do think that is a good point to raise. And it kind of, once again, we're talking about particular redemption in the context of God being sovereign. So I do think before people can really appreciate and understand the depths of um, the doctrines of grace, you really got to have that foundation of the sovereign God of the scripture. And when we talk about Jesus being a perfect savior, I really want to emphasize that that is exactly what we're talking about. And so I wanted to shift real quick to the apostle Paul, if that's yeah, okay, okay with that. Um, Cause I, I wanted to read something out of Romans chapter eight. I believe it's um, around. Okay. So verse 34, where we read Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so when we see that Jesus is the perfect savior, his substitutionary death is not only applied to all those who believe, but even his resurrection is crucial for him being a perfect interceder and, um, Savior, because his resur- we, we also get the benefits of his resurrection. We, too, will receive resurrected bodies fit for eternity one day. And so when Paul says, you know, um, not only did he die, but more than that, he was raised. Um, he, in- he indeed intercedes for us. Paul is not talking about a generic us, all of mankind. But at the very beginning of Romans chapter 8, he says, Um, that there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's talking about Christians there. The the benefit of his substitutionary death and his resurrection life are for us as believers. And once again, it goes back to that motif we're talking about is Jesus is the perfect high priest. He not only intercedes for us, but he is also the, um, the sacrificial uh, he's the sacrifice for us. So he is both sa- the sacrificial lamb and he is the high priest. That's why he sat down at the right hand of the father. He offered his life up, which was totally perfect. And then he wasn't like the old priest, uh, the, the priest of the Old Testament, where they would have to you know, leave the temple, get other sacrifices year after year after year. He gave his life as a perfect sacrifice. And then he sat down as the perfect high priest on our behalf. So, So my big point was, his death and his resurrection are perfectly applied for the elect of God, for those of us that have experienced God's hmm. grace. I think about this too. Um, I guess before I, you know, say this next topic, we're probably gonna, I'm gonna, I guess, move us, I guess, shift our direction a little bit to something that's kind of very controversial. But sure. <laughs> before I do that, I just want to make sure that we're all in agreement. I guess the acronym we're dealing with again, talking about the doctors of grace, which means you know, God is sovereign. But not only is God sovereign, he's sovereign in his electing of people to be saved. So the first letter is, t- you know, T, which means total depravity. Uh, Romans 3, no one is good, not even one. Well, why is that? Well, if you look back in the garden, you know, when Adam sinned, he was our federal head. And so when he sinned, the whole world went into damnation or into sin. Uh, Psalms 51 verse 5 says, uh, David, he says, I was born a sinner from the moment my mother conceived me. So the moment that David's mother was pregnant with him, he was already a sinner. Not because he sinned, but because he was born a sinner. That's why he sins. 
And that's why the world around us is like insane or it's like broken. And so humans right now, mm-hmm. they're totally incapable of picking God or choosing God or apart from his, you know, God's electing grace. So in that context, that's kind of what we're dealing with. And so we speak of unconditional election. It's not that God picks us based on something that he foresaw in us throughout time. He Therefore, he acts, but rather because of the T that mankind is totally incapable of doing good or picking God himself. He chooses us, not because of anything else, because of his favor. Yeah. But here's my question. We know these things, but like, sure. how do we kind of deal with if, you know, if we're, what we're teaching is true, that God is sovereign and that he, you know, he died for a particular group of people. Does that mean that God, he has predestined some for salvation and some from damnation? How do you kind of deal with that? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad you went back to the S and kind of the, the joke of Stulip, because everything really does flow from God being sovereign. And kind of like what you touched on with total depravity, one of the key things for me is inability. When we read in John six forty four, no man can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, right? And so uh, the natural man, we cannot choose God. Like we are not, we don't have the power or the ability. Um, that's where Paul says that all these things we cannot understand unless the spirit um, works within us. So I, I liked how you, you went back to a deeper issue um, with, with who man is. We don't naturally seek God, but in light of that, God is sovereign, and I do think this. I think this is where the rub really. Um, I think this is where it all goes back to. You know, is is God free to create history? You know, literally his story in such a way where he's in control. He has appointed purposes for every person. Um, can he? Is he free to choose a people to lavish his grace and his mercy upon, or is he also free to have a purpose? for um, unregenerate man who actually chooses to sin to let them die in their sins so that his justice and his wrath and his holiness are put on display. I think we're getting back to a key fundamental question. Um, Is God free and allowed to be sovereign over his creation? So within that, um, I loved your last podcast with Creston because y'all talked about God's eternal decrees, right? Especially the way the 1689 um, lays it out. And I've had these conversations with a few different people. And I think one of um, the most staggering passages in all of scripture is Isaiah 46, right? You're, you're probably very familiar, uh, KJ, with where I'm going with this. Because when I read this for the first time, I thought, you know what? It seems like all of creation is unfolding the way that God is declaring the end from the beginning. Everything has a purpose in God's created order. Um, So this passage says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So this is, this is a good passage for us to really grapple with. I think there's other clear passages in the Bible as well, but what we're seeing is that God is the one declaring all of history and how it's taking place. And it has a purpose because God is the one speaking it into existence. 
So when we start thinking about particular redemption, I would say that, yes, God in of himself, I think the way that Ephesians 1 kind of paints this picture is you have the Trinitarian council of God, God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they are almost conversing about what a created world will look like and what will take place, the end from the beginning. And I know you referenced in one of your episodes, or maybe um, we talked about it, but R.C. Sproul and Chosen by God did a really good job of painting this picture that the way that God has determined to intercede with his grace and his mercy, his compassion and love for his elect is categorically different than how God has ordained the non-elect or how some theologians have said the reprobate. He does not intercede in their life the same way. We want to avoid a heresy called equal ultimacy. For the elect, we see that God is demonstrating grace, mercy, and love. And by on the flip side, God is decreeing whatsoever comes to pass. But within that decree, God is not forcing evil men or uh, good men to act against their nature to make them evil. God's decree is simply declaring what's going to come about, the end from the beginning. And so when we see that playing out from a human perspective um, within space and time, we see the unregenerate man choosing to do sin according to their innermost hearts and desire. So we see a compatibility here. Yes, God is sovereign. He has a purpose in all things that happen in his creation. And yet we see man being accountable for his desires and his choices. So does that kind of help paint the picture of how it really does go back to is God sovereign over his creation? Does the, the, the pottery, does the clay have any right to look to the creator and the molder and say, hey, you can't do something? Well, scripture, the overwhelming testimony of scripture says, no, God is God and we are man. So we, we don't have any standing before God to tell him that he can or cannot do something. So I really think it's how we also define what you know free will means. I, I believe man is free to choose according to what he wants to do. We are just not free apart from God being sovereign over his creation. So do you want to chime in on any of that? I feel like I just, you know, had a machine gun going <laughs> that on. That was an <laughs> excellent explanation, man. I want to kind of uh, unpack this part right here. Can we? I know this is why, you know, a lot of people sure. say that well, they're uh, a three-point Calvinist or a four-point Calvinist. And usually, like, the two things they kind of disagree with is, you know, irresistible grace. And then what we're talking about right now, you know, um, the limited atonement. So if we're speaking in the sense that God is sovereign, you know, according to scriptures, that he's the one that chooses who it is who will be saved and who it is who will not be saved. We know there's a verse in Romans 9 that says, no, Paul, he quotes, you know, I think Exodus, how God, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so you have, you know, God saving people and you have people, you know, God's hardened their heart. So in a sense, you know, some people, some Christians out there. They would say, you know, are we robots? You know, is God the author of sin? Even though know, God is sovereign over our freedom, that means that yeah. God is the one that's allowing this sin right. to come about. He's the one that's, you know, doing this sin. And that's why they kind of, um, you know, four-point calendar, because they don't kind of understand. But, like, let's kind of, I guess, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so R.C. Sproul had a special name for four-point <laughs> Calvinists. He called them <laughs> Arminians. <laughs> and you know what? I, I totally empathize with people. I've been there, and it's not that I've arrived, um, but these things are hard to grapple with. 
And hopefully our heart's desire is to be, okay, God, you speak truth into my life. I love how Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord and, and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So the big point is we can't hang on to our presuppositions, our traditions, and bring them into the text. We need to be willing to try to do some introspection, figure out what our biases are, and try to set them aside and let God's counsel, his word, speak truth into our lives. When we start there, I think we have a better chance of getting understanding a lot of these hard-to-understand doctrines. Because when we start talking about the sovereignty of God, that perhaps is the deepest possible thing we could be talking about. You know what I mean? So I just want to say I empathize with people that maybe do not see the harmony of just the five points of Calvinism. But once again, I think we got to go to that, which is even more foundational, which is we have to grapple with, is God truly sovereign over every aspect of life in his created world? Or is it something different? Because however one comes down on that issue, you know, I've talked to a Roman Catholic about this point. You know, does God have omniscience before creation or after his creation? And I think a lot of people, just a knee-jerk reaction would say, yes, well, God would have omniscience before he created. And I think there's obviously, you know, very clear scriptures that teach us that. But if we think about that for a second, that means God has a knowledge in of himself that I think Ephesians 1 kind of articulates Mm -hmm. a Trinitarian council. Well, think about how he chose, you know, any number of worlds that could have come in. Can you hear yes, me? Yes, can you hear me okay? Sorry. Yeah, you cut out. You I had up. a phone call. Sorry, <laughs> it's all good. Um, but yeah, I think if we really think about kind of this fundamental concept, does God have knowledge and all comprehensive omniscient knowledge before he creates or after he creates? Think about the implications of that, because most people say, yes, God is omniscient even before he created the world. Well, that means he had all sufficient knowledge in of himself. That means that any number of worlds that he could have created, the triune God chose one in particular and then chose to speak that into creation. So um, God doesn't learn anything. Everything is fixed from God's perspective. And. I'm, and I'm saying that's, a, that's simply what the Reformed side of things are saying, that God has a decree. God, you know, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, counseled about um, what was going to come to pass, and they had a will. That means that they came to a decision, and nothing is going to deviate from their plan that was decreed and, and planned before the foundation of the world. So that's where Ephesians 1.11 let me pull it up just just so I don't misquote it. But I think this really gets to the heart of is God free to do what he wants with his his creation? In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so I heard um, another influential man in my life, Steve Lawson. He really pointed out how this makes order everything kind of stems out of this eternal will of god from that will meaning a decision was made um involved a council so you had this counseling of the triune god and they made a decision and from that everything in this created world is flowing 
and God is monergistically him alone working all things to a created end. So that's why predestination is huge within it. Um, from God's perspective, everything has a purpose. Nothing is firing around arbitrarily that God doesn't know about or he's learning, you know, as we are learning. But God is truly um, the, the omni king in, in the sense that he is omnipotent. He is omniscient and he is omnipresent. He sees everything. Everything has a purpose. So I really think when we start talking about, um, you know, reprobation and election, we really have to determine in our hearts, is God truly sovereign? Is he unfolding this plan that was determined even before the foundation of the world? So that's where uh, scriptures like Revelation 13, 8, that says, yes, Jesus Christ. He is the lamb slain even before the foundation of the world. God has always had plan A, and he's not really trying to go to plan B or C or, you know, man or Satan kind of mess things up. I don't know. He's, he's accomplishing everything for a particular purpose. I guess um, maybe you can help someone out there that kind of has that kind of problem where, like, if you know they kind of believe everything you're saying, but they're I guess the problem is if they do continue to believe that, then they have the problem of kind of balancing you know, you know, human responsibility and then God's mm -hmm. sovereignty and then the sin that kind of exists in the world. How do we kind of deal with you know passages like you know, I got a, a Paul in Romans 9 that God oh, yeah. hardens people's heart? Is it you know, does that kind of mean that like guys force people to sin, gotcha. or you know, what does that kind of mean? So, for one, I think that's an excellent question that even throughout church history, people are like, okay. You know, we get that God is sovereign, but we know he's not the author of sin. I think that's where the 1689 really helps us understand that question in terms that we can better understand. So when we get into hardening and we get into, you know, how man is responsible for sin, I think we need to carry this compatibilistic perspective that God has decreed and planned everything that comes about in his creation. No matter what one's theology is, if you believe in a personal creator who's omniscient, everybody has to grapple with this same issue, right? So I just want to say that um, this isn't just unique to Calvinism. Everybody has to wrestle. Well, did God know everything before creation? If the answer is yes, well, then nothing's going to deviate from how God already knew it and then chose to create. So how I better harmonize this is I want to understand that that there is a vast chasm between the creator and the creation. There's a huge distinction. God's will and choice is absolute and eternal. That makes sense to me. That's what the, the Bible presents God as he, this, having this eternal perspective and he's sovereign. Man is limited in our scope and our view. And yes, we have a will, but it's not absolute and eternal like God. So I want to carry these two paradigms with us when we go to hard to understand passages. So a lot of times we could say, okay, you know, um, from whose perspective is, is things determined or are things seemingly open for you know, us to make decisions? I would say from God's perspective, these things are determined. From our perspective, we are free to choose according to our heart's desire. So with that in mind, when we look at passages in Romans 9 about hardening, I think um, what we got to understand is the creator creation distinction, because I would say from before the foundation of the world, God had decreed that, you know, we'll take an example like Pharaoh. He was going to harden his own heart. That was decreed by God. So as that's playing out in real time, 
Pharaoh is the one choosing in of himself to harden himself against God. Yet we know both are true. And we even see God hardening Pharaoh's heart multiple times within time and space because Pharaoh would have eventually gave in just for the sake of saving his own people. But we understand Paul's argument goes on to say, but no, 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 God is going to display his mighty power and his glory. So he had a bigger overarching purpose. So I think we got to carry those perspectives. God, I believe, has even decreed how he's going to come into time and space to interact with people. This is really what sets you know, our view of compatibilism apart from what's called deism, where God kind of winds up the proverbial clock and then he just lets it go. I would say God has an eternal plan, but even within that eternal plan, he has marked out times where he's going to intervene. So that's where R.C. Sproul you know, talks about, um, you know, God allows us, you know, or allows man um, in his sin for his own purposes. And I'm saying that makes a lot of sense how within time and space, you don't see God's effectual hand coming in, displaying mercy and grace and loving kindness. But he simply for that allotted time allows them to stay in their sin, stay in their rebellion, and they will receive a justice that is due. So we're talking about that hardening. We always got to carry that Isaiah 46 and Ephesians 1 in mind that God is truly sovereign and has a purpose. But that doesn't negate man's desire, right, to continue to harden his own heart. Yes, God marked that out. Yes, man really does suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And the more truth that he hears and the Holy Spirit isn't coming in to regenerate their heart, to make them receive it. Well, yeah, that will become a more and more calloused heart. But I think compatibilism is is the bigger scope of what we, we must contend for, that God is sovereign and that man is responsible for the, the choices that he makes. So does that, what do you think? Does that kind of help get down to these issues? Yeah, that's spot on, too. I know um, also, like, in R.C.'s book, he talks about, like, you know, passive hardening and active hardening. You, are, you can touch on that if you want yeah. to. And then we got another question for you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, and I love how the 1689 um, London Baptist Confession talks about how God is the primary cause and source of all things. He's the creator of his world. And I believe it's in Acts 17 that just says we live and move and have our being. And the point is because God is sovereign and eternal and literally upholds the world. So we got to have no matter where you land in theology, right? Why theology? <laughs> um you got to realize that God is the primary source and cause of all things, but he uses secondary causes or secondary means to accomplish those end purposes. So I think it was Martin Luther. He said that the devil is God's devil. It's like he's on a leash and God is simply the one holding the leash and letting Satan do what Satan wants to do. So you see that God is primary and he even uses Satan as a secondary means because Wherever we land, we, we must understand that God tempts no man. He can't be tempted, and he tempts no man. God is not like Satan that is literally tempting God's people and accusing them you know, day and night. God is sovereign over his plan of redemption, but that doesn't mean that he is effectually hands-on tempting people to sin like the devil does. So does that kind of make sense of, um, of just understanding categories of primary um, cause versus secondary cause 
And when we get into the, the, the active and passive hardening, I think we got to carry that distinction of primary causes and secondary causes. So um, I think you may have to help me here. Romans 9 says something in a very particular way that makes me think about passive hardening. So let's see. Um, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand by glory. So when you go back and you look at vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, this seems to be a passive act. Like God is leaving sinners in their sinful state to continue to be hardened and callous to the truth. The more truth they hear, it's really to their destruction because the more truth they hear, they're becoming more calloused and calloused over time. That doesn't negate an eternal decree made before the foundation of the world. But what we're seeing in actual time and space is God not moving his hand of mercy and grace, which can't be demanded by any man. He is simply allowing them to stay in their sin. So do you see how we have all these working categories that we, we see from other important places of Scripture? coming into play yeah that kind of help i guess when we understand too like the passive hardening and the active hardening it kind of helps us even kind of further understand how god is not the author mm -hmm. of sin and you kind of did a great job kind of explaining that kind of the primary and then secondary causes how you even say martin luther the devil is god's devil so in that um i guess the, the best example is kind of like the story of Job, mm -hmm. how like um the devil wanted to tempt Job, and god was like you know in a sense god was behind it but he allowed exactly. it to happen he didn't directly, you know, touch Job and do those things, but at any moment he could have stopped it. But yeah, he chose to allow the devil to do those things. One the same way, um, kind of what you just said, I guess like the act of hardening in the sense would be like, you know, if God were attending people himself to get them to sin, to bring about his you know, His purposes. First is what we see in scripture is more about the passive hardening, how um, God, like, you know, there's, there's sin already in, for example, Pharaoh's heart. There's sin already in people today, but yet, in a sense, I think how R.C. Sproul explains it is that God hardening someone's heart is simply giving them over to their own desires. And their own desires, in a sense, kind of hangs them and kind of it will kill them in the end. And so in that, in, that, in that story, when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he just simply gave them over to desire. He didn't tempt them to sin, but he gave them to their own desire. He kind of like took the restraints off his heart. I think um, like right now, it's, you know, we talk about people being totally depraved. And when we say that, we don't mean that the world is as evil as it can be. When we say why, that's because like God is, he's kind of restraining evil people from being so evil in a sense. We have like, you know, polices, we have, you know, parents, you know, some parents, I guess, you know, giving authority in the home. There's a lot of restriction that God has in the world that if any moment, if God took his hands off, you know, those restrictions, yeah. we will all kill each other in a sense. But in the same way, <laughs> when God hardens someone's heart, it's the same thing. He's like restraining us from like, you know, being as evil we can be. But at any moment, he can, you know, want us to go deeper in sin. Yeah, I think that's perfect because, especially from a human perspective within time and space, we see the heart of man is evil continually, and we are bent that way. And yet we're not totally given over to those desires, and it's because of God's restraining hand of grace even on mankind. And so when we swing the pendulum back to God's sovereign perspective for the foundation of the world— Everything that is going to take place in this world is already fully known and determined 
by the triune God. And so when I hear people talking about how these things are kind of, you know, too inscrutable for us to understand, I, I empathize with that because the Apostle Paul tells us to not go beyond what is written. But I want us to be students of the word to actually study what God has actually revealed to us. I understand there are certain mysterious things that aren't revealed to us. But when we read passages like Isaiah 46, um, Ephesians 1, and we look about the early church in Acts chapter 4, praying to the sovereign Lord, who everything is being accomplished by his um, predetermining plan. Those are things that we can't just, you know, kind of take the the marker and just mark out of our Bible that makes us feel bad. We got to understand that God is the creator of all things and that we are simply playing a part in God's redemptive plan. And if we've experienced grace and mercy, then we should praise God and understand that literally everything that we are doing is by God's hand. Does that make sense? But also understanding those those distinctions of secondary causes. So like when you mentioned Job, this helps me a lot. We understand that God allowed Satan to afflict Job, right? Satan was the secondary cause, but even Satan couldn't just do what he wanted to. He had to get permission from God. So he was the means to bring about um, strengthening, sanctifying Job's faith. And Job had a really good theology. He says, it's the Lord that gives and the Lord that takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And yet he didn't blame Satan. He didn't blame, you know, God from, you know, being evil. And he maintained that healthy balance of God being sovereign in all things. Um, and then, and then the, I think the only verse that alludes to Job in the New Testament is James 5.11, which says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the end purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So God had a plan with Job's life. It was to display mercy and compassion on Job. But look at the means that he chose to bring that about. His his means was choosing um, Satan for a task to afflict Job and for Job to lose everything only to bless him again in the end. And so that's how God of the Bible works. He uses the secondary means of, of sinful man or Satan to bring about his grand overall purposes. So only a sovereign God could accomplish that. Oh, man, uh, well, that time we got like, you know, time one last question. We got like, three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely been a great day, man, having you on here, man. But, um, Within the realm of secondary causes, people around us are sinners. The Bible talks about us being sinners, and the Bible speaks of only one way a person can be justified before God. Can you kind of like kind of share the gospel real quick? Yes. You know, I guess in you know, two or three minutes. The point is because you know a lot of people can be puffed over theology and never know the Lord truly personally. So I kind of give you a shout out there real quick. Absolutely, you know, what Jesus <laughs> said, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me." What Jesus has to offer is a relationship to anybody that would repent and believe in him. And I love that because what he's saying is you can't rely on yourself, your good works, or look to anything else in this created world. You have to look to God, the son who became flesh was perfectly obedient to the law. And then he died a, an atonement for sin paid the punishment for sin in every way. And so when you put your trust in Jesus, the only savior, then his perfection gets um, accredited to your account and all of your sin past, present and future will be 
retro retroactive put on the cross and totally paid for in full and that means that you now have eternal life with jesus that you have a relationship with him that not only starts here and now but will continue on um, into eternity and that's where we have a a huge blessing and opportunity to be plugged into a local church around other believers to sharpen each other in the word and to lean on each other during the hard times because we were created for community and so that that initial point is we, we, we got to trust in Jesus. And so when we do that, we now step into a relationship with him. And we also have the opportunity to have a relationship with other Christians. Perfect, man. Perfect, man. I definitely thank you so much, man. Jeremiah, coming on and be a part of this episode. You definitely got to come back okay, on. Jay, I would episodes, love man. to. Um, I, I hope we are able to do some more ministry work. And I love this. I, I love the name of your channel. Why theology? Why does it matter what's important? And ultimately, it's about having a right understanding in truth who God is and who, who Christ is. So I love what you're doing, KJ, and I'd love to be back on again soon. I definitely have you, man. I'm to get out of here, man. You have a good day, man. Right. Appreciate you, man, for coming up with